0: Welcome to Season 2 of the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holberg, CEO of Search Institute, where our own research has found relationships to be the roots all young people need to grow and thrive. During our first season, we focused on the power of relationships that enable young people to shape their own lives and make an impact on their communities. This season, I'm pleased to share that we are featuring interviews conducted by educational leader and former Search Institute CEO, Kent Piquel. Throughout this season, we will explore how connections to resources, relationships, and social networks provide the key conditions that all young people need to thrive. We will consider how culture, class, family, childhood education, and other factors all influence relationship building. On today's episode, We have Dr. Jeff Duncan Andretti talking about the innovative way he is measuring wellness among young people. This is a very powerful episode that you don't want to miss.
1: Welcome to the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with leading researchers on the role of relationships in youth development and education. I'm Kent Piquel, and today I am joined by one of the country's leading thinkers on educational equity and transformation, Dr. Jeff Duncan-Andrade, is professor of Latina, Latino Studies and Race and Resistance Studies at San Francisco State University, and it is really an honor to have you with us today, Jeff. Thank you. It's my honor. So I want to start, maybe it seems a little bit like ancient history for you because you've done so much important work since then. But in, in 2009, you wrote an article that, I don't know if in 2009 we talked about things going viral or research articles in particular, but you wrote an article in the Harvard Educational Review, Hope Required When Growing Roses in Concrete. And it's a, it's a wonderful piece that I've used many times. And there was a line in there that speaks very much to the subject of our conversation today. You said, quote, at the end of the day, effective teaching depends most heavily on one thing deep and caring relationships. So that was more than a decade ago and the world has changed in lots of ways and so just to start us out do you still think that's true and perhaps what have you learned or decided since that time about the role of relationships in teaching?
2: Yes, I think it's it's still true, you know, maybe more true now than ever. Although, you know, I I think that the way that we talk about the things that have Changed. I'm using air quotes in the last ten years is a bit of historical amnesia for, particularly for Black and Indigenous folks, but I think for for many communities that have been deeply marginalized for Black and Indigenous people since this country decided it was a country, but for for many groups, right, have been in pandemic and and multi-layered pandemics long before COVID and long before this sudden like interest in black lives and i should probably use air quotes there again around interest so yes when i said it 10 years ago our communities were were very much already in pandemic and had been in pandemic like conditions for you know hundreds of years and so you know that article was really this call and insistence that Schools take a hard look at themselves and understand that if we don't say that the primary responsibility, the primary purpose of public education for all children is their wellness, then we can't have any serious conversation from where I sit, right? Both as a researcher, as a veteran classroom teacher. As a father of two boys that are, that are in elementary school, as a community member, we, we can't have any serious conversation about rigor. We can't have any serious conversation about care. We can't have any serious conversation about educating children. We are not educating children in this country. We're schooling them. And schooling and education are not the same thing. And so we need to stop conflating those terms and call it what it is. Schooling is the process by which you institutionalize people to accept their position in a society. Education is the process by which you engage them in a collective effort to transform themselves, their community, and the broader society. We are not committed to education in this society. Now, we could be, and what this pandemic, double pandemic moment creates for us is an opportunity to do the hard pivot. But in order to do that, we need to start by asking the question that I just don't hear very many people ask in this country, which is for what? We take children by law (laughs) from their families for eight hours a day for 13 consecutive years. And I haven't heard very much investigation about why we actually do that, right? It's a presumed good, even though the data suggests that huge numbers of children are less well as a result of attending the institution of school. So if we back up for a second and zoom out or maybe zoom down into the actual foundation, and the history of public schools in this country, as Malcolm said, right, of of all the forms of study, the one that is most likely to reward your efforts is the study of history. And if you study the history, the origins of public schools, then where we're at makes total sense. Schools are not failing. They're doing exactly what they're designed to do. And their historical design is very, very clear. And we haven't really departed from that in any real and significant way. And the original intention of schools and the ongoing intention of schools is not to develop deep, caring, well relationships with children. It's not to develop deep, well, caring connections and relationships amongst teachers and staff. It's not to develop deep, well, and caring relationships with the community. And so the work that we've been doing is to say, whoa, 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 let's hard break, not pump them. I mean, slam on the brakes. We now have an opportunity because of this situation that we're in right now to fundamentally rethink. We stopped it. We stopped school, kind of. Right. And now we're talking about returning. And returning to what? When you talk about returning, right, this is a Sankofa moment, right? This is an opportunity, right, to fly forward by looking back and to really look historically, what have we been doing and, and how should that inform what we do going forward? And what we know in in both the research and in practice is that those outlier spaces that are serving Black, indigenous, and and marginalized, wounded, vulnerable youth, well, right? What they have always done historically, and what they are doing in this moment right now to get that uncommon success is that they are centering relationships and wellness. And everything else can wait. Everything waits when children are not well in those spaces. And that's why they get the engagement, the achievement, the transformation, the collectivity, the critical democratic participation that we pay lip service to. But that as an institution, there's very little that suggests to me that's an actual fundamental commitment.
1: Mm -hmm. So much there. I want to come back to your thinking on wellness in a second, but just to probe a little bit deeper the distinction between education and schooling, it sounds like you're saying that education, maybe liberatory education, is a highly relational endeavor, and it doesn't sound like you see a lot of relationship in schooling in the sense you're using that term. Or am I wrong about that? Is that? Can schooling be very relational but not in a transformative sense? Just unpack the role of relationships. Us a little bit in those two contrasting scenarios uh, of education versus schooling.
2: Well, the first thing that that I would say is is that the term liberatory education is a tautology. It's not education if it's not liberatory, right? It's schooling, right? So this like sitting. If we really sit in this binary, right, then education can stand alone as its own, right? And then and then we we say, well, wh- what does that? what is the intention, what is the purpose, right? Because the purpose drives the practice and the practice drives the outcomes that you get, okay? So if I heard your question correctly, you're saying, so if the, if the concept that we're investigating is the idea of relationships, then what do those relationships look like in in a schooling environment? And then what do they look like in an an education environment, right? Okay, so probably the best analysis that I've seen of this is Angela Valenzuela's work, Subtractive Schooling, right? And and she does a really good job of drawing out this binary. And it was really, she was doing research in in a high school in, in Texas, I believe. And it was really the students that were talking about this binary and the ways in which they experienced different classrooms in the same school, right? And there were some classrooms, most classrooms, were what they experienced as schooling. So the book, Subtractive Schooling, st- starts talking about a second binary, which is the binary of care, that one of which she calls aesthetic care, or the kids call aesthetic care, and the other is authentic care, or cariño, Right. And so schooling is about the aesthetics of care. So we have all the, all the kind of rhetorical trappings of we care about you, right? Schools will use words like family and community, right? While at the same time, discarding children that don't comport themselves, right? To a set of agreements that they actually never had any input in, right? And I'm sorry, but like, I don't know like what kind of families folks are coming from but the family that I come from and the and, and the way in which that I've come to know family both from my ancestors and from like my current present day family is that you don't get to throw away children like you don't get to like kick them out of the house lock it and say you can come back in 5 days when you, when you get yourself together that's what schooling does that's the kind of relationship that that schooling develops and the children that she interviews in that in that book are so powerful in the way in which they understand it. And what they basically say is, my teachers will care about me when I show them I care about school and not until then. That's not care. That's compliance. In an educational environment, it doesn't matter. The burden of care Lands squarely on the shoulders of the grown folks, and and it's it's known that every child loves learning. Every child I've ne- I've taught for thirty years, and I've never met a child that doesn't love to learn. I met a whole bunch of kids who don't like to be schooled, right? So so if if a child is resisting what's going on, hey. Okay, in an education environment, then the educator, right, not the schooler, but the educator understands that something else is going on, right? The child is outside of themselves. They're outside of their natural state. The natural state of children, the natural human state, right, is curiosity. And so when a child is showing up in a way where they're not curious, right, they're they're not really able to to be their whole selves, then the educator understands that that you can drill and kill all you want. And all that will happen is you're going to drill and kill. Right. But if you actually want to educate, then you know that what's needed right now is not another worksheet. What's needed right now is not another project. What's needed right now is the other forms of relationship that really are situated inside of authentic care. I care more about you than any score that you will produce. I care more about you than any homework you will ever do. right? And that's how I feel about my sons. You know that's how I feel about my own children, and this is why I think Lisa Delpit's work is is worth giving a nod to here, right? Her book Other People's Children, that in the education environment, these are not other people's children; these are our children. And if a child is suffering, if a child is wounded, if a child is vulnerable, I'm not focused on their reading score. I right? said over and over and over over the years that you win the heart to win the head and that the most wounded children will out of purpose, biological purpose, lock you out of their head if their heart is wounded because it's too dangerous to let you into my head if I'm wounded, right? That allowing someone to have access to the last bastion of safety when you are experiencing unrelenting toxic stress and trauma, the last place of safety that you have is your own head, right? And we know this. We know this from the research around trauma and toxic stress, right? That Children can literally invent worlds in their head to block out, right, all of the threats to their humanity. So why would we think that the most vulnerable child why would we think that a black child in the current racial environment of this country would come into school and say yeah go ahead let me just open it up for you it's it's biologically impossible right and then we blame the child for actually tending to their own biological safety and it's that lack of awareness that gets institutionalized in the schooling environment and it's that elevated awareness, that human connection that get, gets elevated in the educational environment. And that's why children show up right in very different ways in, in those different spaces, even in the same school. And so we, we know that those environments exist, not just because of Angela's work, because of numerous studies where, and if you've taught for a day, you know this that you could have a child that from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., let's take the high school environment, for example, from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. is a problem, right? They're disconnected, they're late, they're disrupt, whatever. And then the bell rings and they go to second period and from 9 to 10, they're like super engaged, they're very collective, they're very participatory. Well, then we know it's not the kid, right? It's the environment and it's the environment that's being curated, cultured, and carried out by the adult in the space, right? And for me, that's the most hopeful part of this work is that we know it can be done with uh, with 100% certainty. I think what we haven't unlocked yet is what does that actually look like institution-wide? I think we know we have excellent research on what it looks like in individual classrooms, in individual programs, in individual projects. The, the piece that we haven't really sorted yet, or at least that I, I haven't seen, is what it looks like to do it tip to finish, edge to edge across an entire institution of education.
1: I want to pivot to this, this more hopeful discussion around wellness and your current work, but I just want to underscore something that I that you said about relationships in that, that schooling environment, to use your term. In the work we're doing at Search Institute on developmental relationships, we've learned the hard way. If you go into a school and you say, you're not investing deeply or authentically in relationships, they look at you like you're crazy. They say, we talk about relationships all the time. I got into this profession because of relationships. And I think your frame around, they're either transactional or even manipulative. I will connect with you to get you to do my work, as opposed to I want to see the real you. I want to validate the real you, and is a really important distinction because I've like when we first started doing this work, there have been times when I would go in. I'm doing a workshop leading with teachers, and I have people coming up at the break crying and saying, "I feel like you're saying we don't care about kids." We, you know, and I've learned okay, I can't you don't I can't shame them into it, but there is a huge difference. And I have just learned the hard way not to say you don't care about relationships. It's a different vision of relationship that we need to be grasping for. So talk about wellness. You use that term with a weight that I really like. And wellness for me brings to mind healing because if you're not well, you got to heal. Talk about your conception of wellness for for young people. And I've you've already talked a bit about the relational aspect of that, but can you measure wellness in the conception that you're thinking about it as well?
2: Yeah, so I'm part of a, a collective called Community Responsive Education, and this is really the, the central focus of our, our research and, and our work around the country right now. And so we, we started something a couple years ago called the Youth Wellness Movement, and part of that is, um, is tackling exactly the, the, the wondering that you had is, uh, about measurement and so we we uh, have embarked on this project to develop the first of its kind youth wellness index to tackle precisely that right and i think that for a long time myself and i think a lot of educators that have been really questioning how schools operate have wrestled with this question about data data is the coin of the realm but like do we really like want to be you know in that kingdom do we really want to infiltrate there or Or do we want to just, you know, sort of reject it out of hand? And and, and after years and years of conversations with folks that I really respect, and particularly in indigenous communities, I got pressed a lot around, like, why are you conceding that term? Because it sort of presumes that that the concept of data originated, um, you know, as a part of the colonial project. In a, a lot of my conversations with indigenous scholars and indigenous healers, they're like, "No, we've we've always done research, we've always collected data. Don't concede those 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 are like ancestral practices." And so, there's nothing wrong with data. The problem is is that we're looking at all the wrong data. And if you look at the wrong data, then you you end up right making adjustments and and being driven, right, if you're being data-driven and you're looking at the wrong data, you're going to drive off cliffs. No different than if you're using your GPS system, right? So you don't blame the data, right? You blame the questions that you're asking that are generating the wrong data. And that goes back to the purpose question, for what? Okay, so if, if, if the purpose of schools in this country is and so I'll give you the, the the scenario that I laid out with this group of superintendents I was working with um, a couple years ago. And we were having this conversation. It was really early in our work around the Youth Wellness Index. Uh, it was like 25 superintendents. And, and they had brought me in to have this conversation about equity. Right? They, they all had these like equity initiatives and equity like strategic plans. And, and so they brought me in to kind of, you know, be a thought partner around this. And we we're in the middle of this conversation. I just stopped them and I said, hey, let me ask you all a question. We're going to just do a quick survey and we're going to do something that's called a forced choice survey. And, you know, I, I like forced choice surveys because they reveal priorities. Right. Because in the forced choice survey, you've got multiple options and, and you might actually like a few of them, but you, ha- you have to pick one. Right. And so I said, OK, we're going to do a, f- a quick forced choice survey. It's a great survey because there's only one question. And you just have to pick between two things. All right, so here we go. And by the way, when you answer this question, answer this question from the perspective of a parent. Like, how would you answer this question about your own children? Not the children in the systems that you all are currently leading, right? But your actual own flesh and blood children. And if you don't have children, pretend. Okay, just imagine, right, how you would answer this as a parent. Okay, so here's the question. Option one, your child scores in the 90th percentile on all of the state and national quote unquote academic metrics that you are currently using. And they score in the bottom quartile for indicators of wellness or your child scores in the 90th percentile for indicators of wellness, but in the bottom quartile for academic indicators. How many of you choose the first one? None of them.
1: Yeah, that's really nice.
2: How many of you choose the second? All of them. I said, okay, cool, good. We're we're on the same page. That's most important for my sons, too. How do you measure that in the schools that you lead? None of them are measuring it. And a couple of them were like, well, we use the Healthy Kids Survey. And I said, can the Healthy Kids Survey tell you how individual students are doing? No, right? You just get big data right? So you can't actually be community responsive. You can't actually respond. You you can't differentiate instruction without data that gets granular to the level of the student. And so you can't prioritize wellness, but you're using the language of care and relationships and family and love and wellness with kids while not carrying that out. And that's why kids don't trust you. And the further they are from the center, the further they are from feeling cared about, the less and less trust they have because they keep hearing you talk about it, but they don't experience it. So if you wanna if you wanna unwrap that, right, then you have to actually measure what you treasure, to quote Angela Duckworth. You have to measure what matters. You just told me that wellness matters. So we've got to measure that, and we've got to let that data drive instruction. We've got to let that data, and what we know from the research outside of education, neuroscience, physiology, neurobiology, psychology, is that when children are well, right when they show up on the on the wellness metrics then the school stuff starts taking care of itself and the children that are not thriving in school consistently are typically not doing well on the wellness metrics so what we know in the psychometric conversations what we know across all those fields that i just discussed is that wellness and the indicators of wellness are actually the preconditions to thriving Right. And so if you don't get the preconditions right, this the stuff that we're looking at in schools, those are lag indicators. Right. GPA, test scores, attendance, engagement, all of those are lag indicators. But you don't move lag indicators by focusing on lag indicator data. You move lag indicators by focusing on leading indicator data. And we don't have that right now. So. We started this project two years ago, and we, we brought together some of the, the best thinkers across all those fields. So MDs, psychologists, indigenous medicinal healers, counselors, young people, families, teachers, and we convened, right, over a year. And through their collective input, we designed the first-of-its-kind Youth Wellness Index, which we are now a few weeks away from beta testing in schools with children to validate. And the goal is that by by the start of next school year, COVID put a you know put a kind of banger on this. It slowed us down a little bit, but the, the goal is that by the beginning of next school year we'll have a va- the first of its kind validated youth wellness index that schools can use to get student level data on how well children are. And then the second part of the project is to work with um, folks to figure out how do you use that data to drive instruction, right? How do you use that data to have that relationship conversation about why is this child experiencing their life in this way? And it's not about you. It's not about your classroom. You can't isolate, right, what's happening in one individual space from the child's life. You have to get a bigger picture on how that child is doing to really begin to sort out what role might you play, what role might the space that you're curating play in helping to make that child feel more well. Just to provide a little more insight into what what the index is measuring, we're looking at three domains of wellness. We're looking at the inner self, we're looking at interpersonal wellness, and we're looking at interconnected wellness and we're looking at it across mind, body, spirit, and emotion. And this is based on right, the input that we got from the leading thinkers and practitioners around creating wellness spaces, that those are the indicators of wellness. Those are the places where wellness shows up. And so those are the places where we really should be driving the relationship conversation, driving the rigor conversation right? And that should be the central purpose of schools. So the, the, the place that we're trying to push the field is that this is an opportunity for us to repurpose schools, right? And to say that the central purpose of schools, and I would argue the only purpose of schools, is the wellness of the children that are in that space. And that that doesn't preclude you from teaching reading or writing or math or PE or any of this other stuff, but you're teaching reading for what to make sure that the child is well you read to be well you do math to be well you do science to be well not to get a job not to go to college right not to escape your neighborhood not to escape your people right you do it to be well right and if you if you read to be well i'm not worried about whether or not you're going to college Because if you're well and you want to go to college, you're going to college. And if you're well and you go to college, you're going to stay. Right. You're not going to have jumped through all the hoops, dotted the I's and crossed the T's and show up. Right. As a black or brown child in an environment that is nearly all white and suddenly be like, I I don't think I really belong here. Right. Because if you have inner self-wellness. Right. You know. Right how beautiful you are for being black or brown. You know who your ancestors are. And when you walk into these environments, you're like, this is nothing. I'm armored up. I'm inoculated against the toxicity of this space because I know who I am, right? That's not how we're preparing children of color for college. We're preparing children of color for college as if what you need to get through college and any black or brown person will tell you it, it was never about the ABCs and the one, two, threes. I could do the work. I couldn't do the people. Right. And and so if, if what we're really about is creating the space and place for those trajectories for children, particularly marginalized and vulnerable youth, we already know in the research how to do that. But we would have to fundamentally rethink how we're operating in schools, how we think about relationships, how we think about rigor, if we were really going to do that in our school systems.
1: So this might seem uh, like doubling down on a sort of a nerdy, researchy question, but I think it's a lens to these, these deep issues of change that you're talking about. If I understand you right, the wellness index will give the data on an individual young person, not just at the aggregate level. So you'd be able to go engage and be in dialogue with an, an individual student on what they're saying on the index, or is that to be determined at this point?
2: It'll give you both. So you can look at aggregate trends, right? and you can get really granular. And the way that we've designed it methodologically is that it won't just be the child. So so there's gonna be multiple inputs, right, on each index for each child, right? So the child will self-assess, and then the child will select an adult in their life that they feel best understands their wellness. The child will select a peer in their life, that they feel best understands their wellness. And the teacher that is giving the, the survey will also right externally evaluate the child. So now you get four points of light that give you a fuller conversation about how each child is doing. And then the unknown right now is how can we use that data to create educational responses to children? So the children that are well what we're really wanting to figure out is how do you sustain and protect wellness? Because particularly for vulnerable and wounded youth, that wellness that they might be experiencing in that particular moment when the index is right given out might come under threat really quickly. And so I think we don't have enough conversation about that. Oh, that kid's good. Right. No, they're not. right? They live in a racist, classist, homophobic society. Right. And so they're under attack. They're just doing a good job of fending it off right now, right? And with the child who's not showing up well in that particular moment, we don't know yet what are the kind of pedagogical responses that can move the meter. We don't know, like, longitudinally what what those changes look like. Is it going to bounce around, right? So there's a lot of questions that remain to be answered. But I think that, you know, Michelle Fine uh, told me once, she said, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about schools is that when we do things like like this, like let's pivot and and really focus on equity or let's pivot and really focus on wellness, everybody talks about that like it's an experiment. We don't talk about what we're currently doing in schools as an experiment. We experiment on children every single day in schools. So we should not be thinking about a fundamental pivot as an experiment unless we admit that what we're currently doing is an experiment. And and what I would add is, is that we actually have really good data and longitudinal data on our current experiment. And guess what? It's failed. It's not failing. Like, it's failed. You don't need another year of data to know the data we're going to get. If we keep it, it's the that old the famous Einstein saying, right? Like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Our colleague at Stanford who said, you know, we're tinkering towards utopia. We are tinkering, but we ain't headed to utopia, right? We're we're tinkering deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, right? Under the presumption that, well, we it's more or less solid, it's more or less right, right? We just gotta, you know shift some stuff. We're moving deck chairs around on the Titanic. I have never seen educational data ever that suggests to me that we could tinker with the project that we've invested in and create transformational experiences in the aggregate, right, for the most vulnerable and wounded youth.
1: Yeah. So I got to ask one more practical question on the wellness index, and then we'll balloon back up. When will it be available? It sounds like you're still doing uh, development. You're still doing this work. I'm so desperate for some tangible things that can move the needle that I I don't want to let this go. I'm excited about it. Timeline, one year, two years, TBD?
2: Yeah, well, I give you a timeline, and then I promise you in a a week it will have changed. It's just kind of the, the world we're in right now. But So where we're at right now is we just cleared IRB. So between now and June, we will test and validate the index with thousands of children in schools, in the various partnerships that we have around the country, so that by, you know, hopefully by the end of June, we will have a validated index that is then usable in schools. And then the next year, we have nine teacher fellows around the country across the K-12 spectrum that have been working with with us, both to... Have conversations about wellness and a pedagogy of wellness, right, in their classrooms, um, what we call community responsive pedagogy. So, next year, those nine teachers will be testing the index in their classroom, the validated index in their classrooms um, with us, and then building curriculum and narrative around it and doing some kind of small scale learning about, okay, now that you have this data what can you do with it like how did you adapt when you got this right this data back on the children that you're serving and so there'll be a lot of learning there and then running parallel to that we have a documentary film crew that has been following all of us and these teachers and again like filming although netflix suggests differently with all this new content they have coming out but filming is is you know is slippery right now But the goal is that by the end of next year, we'll have a lot more insight on the Validated Index and a feature-length documentary that has a website with tons of resources for teachers and live video of practicing wellness, right, that is metacognitively narrated by the teacher themselves, right, that gives some insight into what you see right here, like what I'm doing right here, this is why I did it. This is the backstory. This is the movida that I made in that particular moment. And in the following year, we're going to do a national film tour. So we're going to take the film on tour with the index and the teachers. And we're going to go you know, to, to a few cities, screen the film to anybody that's interested, and then break bread. And in the second half of the, the day, those teachers will lead workshops on how they how they do that work right and how they were using the index and then the the goal is and you know once the index is ready like we're open to anybody right having access to it and learning from it we have some really clear intentions around how we want to learn from it and then just to kind of give you the full scope of the the project then phase 2 of the project we will partner with a very small number of schools we're thinking probably 3 that say that they are willing to repurpose themselves. And that institution-wide, they will make wellness what they do. And then our team will partner with those three schools over multiple years and begin to figure out what does it take to completely pivot the battleship and to turn a school from what it's been doing to a school that is driven by wellness data, focused on wellness data and allowing that to be their, their their primary purpose in the service of the children that they serve. Because as I said earlier in this conversation, I don't think we really know what that takes, right? I, I think that there's a lot of people who, will, a lot of amazing teachers who will be able to pick up this index and just you know make it work, right? But to do it across a child's experience, where every space that they go into in a school is a space of wellness. I don't think we understand. Well, I don't think we understand what that looks like. And I don't think we understand how you actually engage in a repurposing of the whole like how do you support teachers and leaders to to transform their space really. Right. Not with the posters on the wall, not with the slogans, not with the chant. But I mean, really transform the experience and 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 really transform the experience, not just for the children, but for the adults. You know, like I, I think a lot of adults in schools are sick and they're made sick by being in schools. And I think what there's what they say to you can't when when you're when you're working with them is it's probably pretty true. Like I didn't sign up to do this shit what happened to me? And you look at a lot of these like early career teachers and that research around that really arcs teachers longitudinally is really interesting because they come in, frankly, a lot of them with a sense and sensibility about my purpose is wellness, right? My purpose is deep, meaningful, loving, caring connections with these children. And 10 years later, you know it's like the stanford prison experiment you know it, and and so i think something's happening in these institutions to everybody that crosses that threshold and i don't think we can keep disentangling that conversation and talk about what we're doing for children without talking about what we're doing for grown folks because if schools are a community right and we're you know biological beings then um you know what 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 happens to adults is going to happen to children and what happens to children is going to happen to adults because we're sharing the same soil right and and, and we're and, and if we you know use that kind of botany metaphor um what what's happening to my roots this is why I, you know say that the, the the single most important thing we can do in schools is to get it right with black and indigenous children. Because if Black and Indigenous children are well, everybody else will be well. But they're often the last groups that we talk about, or we talk about them as if their needs are somehow separate or distinctive, right? You know, the schools that I'm working with, I tell them, like, I don't want to hear about any other groups, including RASA. Like, tell me how you're going to make things well for your Black and Indigenous youth. And I know RASA youth are going to be good right i know asian youth are going to be good i know white kids are going to be good and i don't want to hear any other conversations just tell me right how you're going to make your space well for black and indigenous youth and i promise you that the other youth are going to thrive
1: i don't want to completely rush past the the role of the school leader in this in this transformation i i personally I really like the work that Muhammad Khalifa is doing around um, culturally responsive school leadership. And I've thought it has a lot in common with your work on the, the community responsive pedagogy, because Muhammad's work on culturally responsive school leadership, I think it's basically in a soundbite, it's community responsive school leadership. How are you thinking about the role of that? And leader, the principal is the obvious one, but you know, you founded a school, the Roses and Concrete Community School there in Oakland. How do you think about the role of school leadership in this um, transformation?
2: We have to really interrogate that term. Whew, we could do a ten podcast, on roses and concrete, and 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 I still I, I still don't know. You know, I, I'm still a little too close to it to have feel like I have good meaningful reflections on it. I, I it often feels more like I have reactions to what happened.
1: Mm-hmm. That's very self aware.
2: <laughs> what I would say is is that the way that we've crafted the school leadership right that role, it's impossible. To be fully transparent, you know, I, I was a teacher for a long, long time. And, and I always, I had very few <laughs> good things to say about my principals, you know, and I always just felt like they don't do shit. You know, it's like, what, what, are they, what are they good for? Like, And when I got on the other side of that and I saw what that job is, I was so humbled. And I just had so much respect for the people that try and take on that work. But I think that we haven't invested effectively in giving schools the kind of leadership support that they need, right? Um, and so you you end up with these, uh, and not, not, not all that different from the stories we tell about teachers, but you hear these kind of hero, shiro, you know, stories of the amazing principal, and when you actually examine their life and what they have to do to get that job done, they're not well. And I think if we did wellness studies, on principles, the data would be really frightening. Like a lot of the principles I know are physically not well and that's not sustainable and it's not healthy and it models something for teachers and for children that I think is really toxic. So what we have been playing around with it Roses and Concrete and playing around isn't the right word because we're, we're not playing, right? But, but what we've been experimenting with is a different kind of leadership model that it is really about collective leadership. There is a role for a principal or a school leader, right, and a certain skill set that allows the school to function effectively that I don't want to, like, disregard. But a lot of the, the, the key decisions, like decisions about PD, decisions about curriculum, decisions about budget, right, those should not sit um, in the hands of one person. If what we're talking about is actually culturally and community responsive practices, if what we're talking about is wellness, right? That does not create the conditions of wellness. So we have a collective decision-making structure that is made up of parents, teachers, right? Cross-cutting staff. And it's not lip service. I think a lot of schools say they have that, but it's a rubber stamp committee. We have like authentic debate and discussion and decisions cannot be made. Staffing decisions, budget decisions, curricular decisions, climate and culture decisions cannot be made without a collective right um, agreement about, yes, that's the direction we want this community to go. Now... There's been a, some real frustration around that because that process, a truly democratic process, is much slower. But I think that that's part of the, the sickness trap of schools, is that you're expected to move like this, right? Decisions need to be made, right? And I think that part of the reason that that happens, and in an observation I've made over the years in schools, is there's one group that is conspicuously absent from schools, And it's elders. And when you when you get around elders, one of my best teachers is is um, this brother named Maestro Jerry Teo. And he says, don't mistake olders for elders because they're not the same. Some people are just older, but elders. Right. When you get around elders. Right. They have a wisdom that's that's come as a result of their age. And you get around elders and one of the most common things that my elders say to me is slow down, slow down. And I think that that absence of the elder voice in schools, because schools are so youthful. A lot of the teaching force is young. The children are obviously young. And so I think part of what, what we've tried to do is to bring in that elder wisdom that helps us be okay With things going a little slower and not coming in and saying we have these nine things on our agenda and we're going to get through them come hell or high water, even if that means that we're doing things that aren't good for us or kids. And so I think that that's the that's part of the leadership conversation that I don't hear enough people talking about.
1: Yeah. We work with a lot of schools and districts and there's sometimes this perverse sense that the more manic you are, the more important and committed you are. And I'm just, sometimes one of the things I like about working with rural schools and superintendents is it's somewhat less like that, especially in our urban systems. Let me ask you one more question. You've been incredibly gracious with your, your time. What do you think for everybody out there listening to this podcast who presumably cares about relationships in particular, but kids and wellness, the kinds of things that your research and your practice work is, is really leading on, what do you want everybody to remember as we hopefully begin to emerge from the lockdowns of the pandemic and the many other challenges and ongoing struggle for racial justice and other things going on in our society, what do you want us most to keep top of mind as we hopefully over the next year begin to seize the opportunity that you talked about at the beginning of this podcast?
2: I just want people to understand that schools are whatever we make them. We have a choice. And they're not working, you know. They're obviously not working for vulnerable youth, wounded youth, you know, many kids of color. But I don't think they're working for white children either. I don't think they're working for middle class and wealthy children either. I mean, our our national public health data is tragic. We are sick as a nation, and it's not for lack of expenditure on health care. I mean, we we spend you know, 20 to 25 times as much on healthcare as, as, as anybody else in the world. And yet we're, of, of all the industrialized nations in the world, we're the most sick, right? Because when do you need healthcare, right? So a move toward wellness could transform this society in so many ways in one generation. And I think about the places where I've seen that happen at, at very small scale. That when you get it right with children over the course of their experience, it's sustainable and it's lasting and it's transformative, not just for them, but for their families and for their communities. And so as as challenging as things are right now, I am an eminently hopeful dude. And the reason for that is, is that I stay around young people. Not, I mean, I have twin boys that are eight, you know, so i um
1: You have no choice.
2: <laughs> and yeah. Right. Well, I have choice. That's true. You're right. You do. But I, I don't want to go to jail. So, right. you know, I stay around young people in my community and they are so profoundly, naturally joyful and hopeful and creative and thoughtful and so I, st- I, I stay around them because I want to stay in that space. Because I think that when you when you do the work that I do, it's easy to become pessimistic. And it's easy to talk about sticks of dynamite instead of stacks of wood. And I believe that we can build a school system where every child every day comes out of the building more well than when they walked in. And I believe that when that becomes the national commitment, that a lot of this stuff that we're wrestling with as a society will start to self-correct. Because if that's what children experience every day, for eight hours a day for 13 consecutive years, I mean, the, the sociological and psych research around this is really clear, the single biggest impact on child development is school, not YouTube, not all this. Like they said that about our generation too, right? Like hip hop was going to ruin us, right? Rock music was going to ruin right? No, the biggest influencer, right, is not TV, right? It's not the internet, it's school, it's school. And so if we get school right for an an entire generation of kids across that mega arc of 13 years i i i believe like to my core that a lot of this stuff that we can't seem to unlock in our broader society will get unlocked by these the, the magic of our children and if you wait to to get you know people into these conversations until their adult years the foundation is already set, right? But if you set the right foundation, I think the kind of conversations that those children will have will be way ahead of where we are right now. We're playing catch-up for all the things that we went through as children going through this school system. And I want to see what happens for a generation of children that don't have to play catch-up that start on third base running for home for justice and equity and democracy and all those things that we've paid rhetorical homage to right but haven't yet been able to deliver in reality for for so so many people
1: what a fantastic place to end it's it's back to that that hope and the roses in the concrete that was in your article we started out with Jeff Duncan-Andrade, thank you so much for uh, sharing your insights and your time with us. We are excited about this new vision of wellness and the central role that relationships play and the practical index and tools that you and your colleagues are bringing to bear.
0: That was Dr. Kent Piquel interviewing Dr. Jeff Duncan-Andrade, who's an associate professor of Latina Latino Studies and Race and Resistance at San Francisco State University. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute. I want to thank you for listening and ask that you review Rooted in Relationships wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about this show. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be back in two weeks with our next episode of Rooted in Relationships. The Rooted in Relationships podcast is made possible by grants from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation nor the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. For more resources on how to build and strengthen developmental relationships with young people, visit the Resources Hub on our website at searchinstitute.org.